Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode number 148. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, And you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. Hey everyone. So if I sound, I don't know if I'm going to sound weird or not, but um, if I sound a little bit different in my talking today, I have just changed my retainers to the last set and my teeth are in so much pain. Um, so it's a bit difficult to talk. I'm kind of like answering my boyfriend with like, mm's, um, because I just don't want to talk. So yeah, I might just, I don't know. It's difficult to pronounce some words because it kind of hurts my, my teeth. Okay. So I'm going to make a really big statement here. This is my favorite episode I've ever done. I love this episode. I could have continued talking to Christy, our guest forever. It was just I find it mind-blowing and fascinating. So I'm really, really excited about you hearing this episode. But before we start, I just wanted to remind you that I'm currently running a free endo belly challenge. It's a four-week challenge where you get one email a week on a Monday and I give you a little bit of education and one action to carry out that week that will help you to begin addressing your endo belly. It started today, um, but you can join at any time because if you join after today, I will direct you to kind of an archive page where you can catch up on the previous emails um, at your own pace. So don't worry if you've missed signing up before today, you can sign up at any time over the next four weeks. So I'm really excited about that because I've been thinking about doing this challenge for a while and the response so far has been huge. So there's like, I'd last count, there was like 110 people um, in the group. So it'd be really exciting to see where it takes us and how you guys get on with it. And if you're in the group, um, I hope that you're enjoying it so far. So the link to the challenge is in the show notes. It's also linked in my Instagram Um, you can find it pretty easily. So you guys know I've been fascinated with the world of chronic pain science for a long time now. Um, Obviously, we covered it in my training and I did an episode on lowering pain signals through calming the brain and nervous system back in 2019, I think. I've linked to the episode in the show notes and I cover it in my course. But I've been on a continuous evolving research journey since learning about it in my course, um, like my my training course that I did, and especially with my chronic bladder pain that hasn't been very responsive to so many different approaches. It's been responsive to a degree, of course. And I think that it's 
this approach to chronic pain is a missing piece of the puzzle for many of us with endo. And so my research has led me to Curable, which is an app for chronic pain that works by helping to reprogram the brain and the nervous system so that we can unlearn pain pathways and reduce chronic pain flare-ups. And I absolutely love Curable and I use it with my clients to help them to address the ways in which trauma or stress or a heightened nervous system could be contributing to their pain levels. And like I said, I often find it's the missing piece of the puzzle in someone's endo healing journey. So I'm really excited today to introduce you to this week's guest, social worker and psychotherapist, Christy Weepy. And Christy is on the scientific advisory team at Curable, and she's specialized in chronic pain, depression, and anxiety. And after enduring years of chronic pain herself, Christy went on to not only cure her chronic pain, but also to specialize in treating it. So in today's episode, we discuss Christy's personal story with chronic pain, how all pain is made in the brain and how that differs from being told endo pain is just all in our heads. I I really, really wanted to get that across in our conversation. And Christy did too, that, you know, we do not believe under any circumstances, endo pain is all in our heads, but we were trying to explain the science of how pain is actually made, regardless of what the pain is or where it's from. We talk about how pain evolves to become chronic and how that actually changes the brain and the nervous system. We talk about what factors influence chronic pain for better or worse, how to identify if pain is from tissue damage versus an upregulated nervous system, how an upregulated nervous system can directly influence endometriosis pain. And she also shares with us exercises to begin reprogramming the brain to lower pain signals. So I really hope this episode is useful to you and perhaps it will be the missing link um, that you've been looking for in your endo healing journey. So please let me know what you think about this episode. I'd love to hear because I find this such a fascinating subject. I'm looking to do some extra qualifications in it. And I also just, I want to make sure that we've come across the right way in this. I don't want anyone to come away feeling like, we've gaslighted people or, um, we don't believe people's pain is real. So I've really tried to try to make sure that comes across in the episode, but if it doesn't, I welcome your feedback. So yeah, without further ado, here is Christy. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for welcoming me. So can we start with, um, a little bit about yourself and your work and, how you came to work in this incredible field of chronic pain and neuropathic pain. Absolutely. So my name is Christy Weepy and I'm a psychotherapist. I specialize in the treatment of chronic pain and I also work with anxiety and depression. But I did not start out as a pain practitioner. I started out as a pain patient. Oh, wow. I feel like I've had nearly every symptom in the book and I could trace those symptoms probably back to childhood, but the peak of my pain experience happened in graduate school when I was working towards my master's in social work, essentially working to become a therapist. Mm. So I had all kinds of symptoms and I was, (laughs) it was quite the look that I had in grad school because I used to bring my own special seat cushion to class because it hurt my legs to sit in the standard desks. And I would pull out this heating pack and wrap it around my neck because it hurt my neck to try to keep my head fixed on the professor. And I had wrist braces on both my wrists. I often had leg braces on both my legs. And I would do all of this symptom management. And sometimes I had vertigo so badly that none of it would even matter. And I would just have my eyes closed, listening to the professor, looking like I was asleep until the lecture was over. So I was a bit of a mess symptom wise. And somehow I was lucky enough in this state to be hired on to the pain psychology center, which is a center in Los Angeles that treats uh, patients with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up eventually becoming a pain practitioner. But of course I had to work out my own pain symptoms before doing so. So that was kind of an amazing and 
trippy dual experience to be recovering myself and also learning in real time how to apply that to other people's recoveries. Yeah, absolutely. I often feel like that's the way in the end and people with people who are doing this kind of kind of work. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, this is personal and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole because we have so many wonderful questions um, to get through. But is there, I mean, can you speak to some of the work that you did? Are you comfortable with sharing any of that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Happy to. A lot of the work for me came from well first of course there's the the importance and the the needed step of learning what you have right so Mm -hmm. i um i'm lucky enough to say that i did not have any pain that was corresponding to a chronic condition that i'm still managing so i had symptoms in my body that were solely being caused by neural circuits in my brain so i don't have any ongoing issues that i'm managing at this point once i learned that once I learned that pain and other symptoms can be generated from the brain, yeah. then it was for me recognizing how much my anxiety was playing a role, not only with my pain, but in the way that I was relating to really everyone and everything around me. I just put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself, hold, held myself to unbelievably impossible standards. And it was just this intensity with which I was living my life that was manifesting itself as pain in my body. And once I, first of all, knew that that was a thing that could happen, and then second of all, started working to ease up on some of that intensity, that's when I was able to break um, break out of that cycle or at least start to. Wow, okay, I recognize myself so much in what you're saying. Um, and I think that um, a lot of listeners will do as well so um but to kind of explain you know how this works how you know anxiety can be linked and how the brain affects pain can you tell us how pain is made in the brain and you know how pain is made in the first place and how does this differ from the idea that i think something that i'm very cautious about because i've been talking about this for a while now um and I'm always very cautious about trying to distinguish between having our community be told the pain is all in our heads Mm. versus trying to explain the pain is real, but it's made in the brain. Um, So if you could kind of take us through like a pain science 101, that would be amazing. I'd love to. And honestly, it is a full body reaction for me anytime I hear Uh, even alluding to the idea of someone being told that the pain is all in their head. It's, Mm. I I certainly don't need to tell you you or probably anyone in your community this. It's just so incredibly damaging. And I'm so sorry if you or anyone listening has ever been told that. And um, I believe, I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the average average time it takes to receive an accurate diagnosis of endometriosis is somewhere around 10 years. Yeah, in the US, it's um, near on 10 years. In the UK, it last time I knew it was seven years. That, when I was working with Endometriosis UK, it was seven years. I don't know if they've oh. updated that stat, but that was the last stat that I saw for the UK. But yeah, I think it's nine to 10 years in the US. Oh, oh, I, I mean, either way, so anywhere between seven to 10 years is, is too long. So I, <laughs> I can't even imagine how many times along that journey a patient might have received the message that it's all in their head. So I mm. appreciate your making this distinction between that inaccurate understanding versus the idea of of pain coming from the brain. So there's three things I want to share about pain. And Jessica, if you could do me a favor at any point, if I'm sharing something that you feel like could be edited or tweaked to better align with someone who might be going through um, a condition like endometriosis or another ongoing condition that you see in your community a lot, just jump in, jump in, join me, edit me, any, any way that we can tweak it to be most accurate. Great. Okay. So there's three things that I want to share about pain. And the first is really simple. All pain comes from the brain. Even when you feel pain really sharply in your body, it still comes from the brain. And we can take the simplest example of stubbing your toe. When you actually think about what's happening when you stub your toe, it's that nerves in your skin communicate to your brain And then your brain processes that experience and generates the feeling of pain as a result. So Mm. your body feels the pain, 
but your brain is the mechanism that's actually creating it. Whether you're stubbing your toe or whether you have a chronic condition or whether you're like me, you have no conditions or anything pathological or structural in your body, but you're still experiencing pain. In any and all of those out, any of all of those situations, the pain is coming from the brain. Uh, second thing I want to share about pain is that it's designed to protect you. That is its purpose. Our brains produce pain as a way of warning us of danger. Simple example of that, if you put your hand on a hot stove, your brain will send pain there to your hands as a warning to move your hand. That's going to cause injury. If you break your leg, your brain makes you feel pain there as a warning to rest and recover. So there is a reason why pain hurts and why we pass it down from generation to generation. It warns us of danger. It's quick and it's effective. Mm. So those are the first two things. All pain comes from the brain and the purpose of pain is, is to protect us and to warn us of danger. The third thing I want to share about pain, and this is the newer bit maybe for uh, a lot of people listening and definitely for mainstream medicine, is that the brain can generate pain when it perceives a threat of any kind. So this can be physical or emotional. Mainstream medicine, it's accustomed to recognizing pain as an indicator of physical damage. That's what doctors do. Something hurts, what's, what's broken, what's damaged in your body. But mainstream medicine is only beginning to recognize the ability of the brain to warn you of psychological or emotional danger. Mm. And I think the idea of the brain alerting a person to emotional danger must play a very big role in the world of an endometriosis patient or someone else who has a chronic condition that is difficult to diagnose or has multiple conditions that are overlapping because you've probably spent literally years cycling through failed treatments or receiving unnecessary procedures and a worst case scenario being told after all of that, these symptoms aren't real. This mm -hmm. is just part of being a woman or, or this is all in your head. Yeah. Yeah. And I, oh, I have so many questions off of that. But, <laughs> um, so how does the, is there like a, a system in the way that the brain decides, okay, so for example, um, my bladder pain, I've all, I have had it, um, this is what's complicated for me, I have had it probably since I had a catheter um, following a really, really serious car accident. So I broke my spine and pelvis and hips mm. and things. And then I had a catheter in because I was, I was kind of paralyzed for a little while. And then um, uh, after that, I can't really remember what it was like before, but after that, I had the science of interstitial cystitis, but I didn't know what that was until about mm. five years ago or six years ago. And it wasn't unbearable. It wasn't, it was more frequency and pressure. Um, and the pain was starting to creep in. And then all of a sudden the pain became, sort of came out of the blue and became really, really severe when I was approaching the, um, my exam for my women's health coaching course oh, wow. that I was doing. Plus I was also writing a book at the same time. And there were other things going on. My, my boyfriend had just lost his dad. Like there was, there was things going on in um, the building we were living in, like with neighbors, like a guy abusing his wife. So I oh, was really stressed and yeah. I've not been able to get my pain back under control since then. So mm. I guess I maybe obviously there might have been tissue and nerve damage already done. So the pain just, it was obvious. It was it easily ampl amplified, but how, say if I didn't have that situation and suddenly my blood pain just started hurting in response to that stress, why does a brain pick like, oh, I'm going to make Jess's bladder hurt or, mm. you know, for you, I'm going to make Chris, Chris's neck hurt. Like, why is it random or is there a weakness there? Like, how does that work? Do you know? Oh, it's such a good question. We, the field at large does not have a singular answer for that yet. It's something mm -hmm. that a lot of researchers are interested in and there are clues or patterns like, and you're referencing some of them. Sometimes the pain will flare up in an area that either actively or previously had some damage or had an infection or had an injury. Sometimes the pain will exacerbate that area or return to that area. Mm. Other times, and this is so interesting, and there's certainly, again, we are really lacking in the research here. 
sometimes it almost seems like a metaphor, like my neck. And, and of course, there has to be science to back some of this up. And we will, we're, we're working on that in the field at large. But my neck started hurting when I had a situation in my life, I had a person in my life specifically, um, that, that was literally a pain in my neck. I, I would use that expression like, oh, this is a pain in my neck. Sometimes we have people who feel like they can't stand up for themselves. Assertiveness is really difficult for them, for them and their feet hurt. Like we, we've also found that there are sometimes a really strong storyline tie to the places in our body that's hurting. So I just, again, of course, there's science to it somewhere. We need to learn that. But I find the storytelling aspect of it also quite remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen, um, I mean, I'm sure you have, um, oh God, what is it called? The, um, there's a documentary and it's got a young boy in it who he was in a car, his best friend was in a car accident and ever since he's had knee pain. Have you seen that documentary? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What's it? Right. I can't remember what it's called. The, if um, we're talking about the same one, it's, it's Schubiner's, this might hurt, right? Yes, Schu- that's it. That's it. Yeah. 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 Um, because his his pain started, he had a dream that he was in a car accident with his friend and he hit his knee in the dream. And then his mm-hmm. friend died the next day in a car accident. And then ever since his knee has been insanely painful. So that was just fascinating and sort of links in to some, you know, yes, what you're remarkable. saying there. Okay. And is am I correct in believing that the body has sort of pain and injury memories so just to make this tangible for listeners um my car accident like i said broke my spine hip pelvis etc when i get really really sick like the like a flu like not a cold like a flu or a stomach bug i will get like really bad inflammation and pain in those Mm. previous injuries um and my understanding is it's almost like those cells and those nerves are they know that these areas were damaged before so they sort of go they inflame it to protect it in case they get injured again does that make sense am i saying that right Mm -hmm. and is that correct absolutely makes sense when our brain is experiencing an increase of threat of any kind we have the chance of activating old neural pathways that are tied to threats from a previous experience so for you ties to a a time where your body was actually damaged following this car accident, there was an increase of threat there. But then when there's a new increase of threat, like a flu or a bad sickness, it's, it's almost like the alarm is going off on, on, from all angles and it can allow for flaring up of different symptoms. We see this even quite simply in day to day, if someone has back pain and they're hungry, their back pain can get worse. Wow. Or if they're tired, <laughs> their back pain can get like any little increase that the brain perceives of, oh, there's more stress here than there was before, it can increase the alarm on all levels. So I think you're absolutely right. Okay. That's so interesting. I am um, obviously we've we've spoken, I, I had shingles recently and um mm-hmm. I originally thought that it was um a physio issue and I went to see a physio about it because the pain started in my hip. It woke me up in the night and it went back round the back of my hip to my spine. It literally went to the two places I broke. And then it went down to wow. the inside of my knee where I had soft tissue damage. And it felt like genuinely, it literally felt like exactly what the car accident felt. And I remember the feeling of no one position whilst I was in hospital was was comfortable and I was just awake all night in agony and this is what it was like and I said to my boyfriend like I don't know if I've I've somehow like re-broken like my hip like I don't know if I've like I've like had a stress fracture I literally was like it feels it's taking me right back there I feel like I've been in the car accident again and I obviously like with shingles it follows a nerve pathway Um, and I was just wondering, you know, I wondered, well, maybe is that nerve pathway damaged? So the shingles attacked that nerve or, you know, I, yeah, I don't, or maybe it was just, I don't know. Wow. That's so fascinating. It felt that way. Yeah. Really, really interesting. There's something about shingles. So you're not the only person who's like-minded and experienced a lot of mind-body symptoms that somewhat inexplicable likely was experiencing a shingles attack. I had shingles when I was like seven. I think that was one of my first wow. looking back because that's not normal. Seven-year-olds don't get shingles and, and even people our age are mm. not 
commonly coming down with shingles. It's a, it usually happens much later in life. So I don't know a ton about it, but I, I, as difficult as your situation sounded, like I had a little smile on my face, just being like, I can't believe I'm talking to someone else who experienced shingles. <laughs> because it's just a very bizarre sign that the body is just experiencing too much, too much threat, too much stress. Yeah, absolutely. But just, I mean, I find it fascinating when any, when anything happens to me, I'm like, oh, okay, I can talk about this in my work. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so then we understand now how pain is made in the brain, but how does it become chronic? And something that I'm really interested in, because there is research into this for endometriosis, is how does that chronic pain change the brain and the nervous system? Or I guess, how does that, you know, continue brain, the continuous pain change the brain so it becomes chronic? Um, And my second question to that is, you know, recent research is indicating that most chronic pain is neuropathic pain. Um, And I just wondered, does that vary for someone with endometriosis where yes, it is chronic pain, you know, that's, it's defined as chronic pain, but there is a constant source of tissue damage versus Mm -hmm. like, you know, a lot of the research is about people who don't have an injury or, you know, there's no, there's no correlation that there's healthy people with no pain and they have like back problems versus people who have pain and also have the same back problems. And then people who had an old injury and it healed. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that, you know, is that different? Does that work differently? Um, there's a lot there. Let me know if you need me to repeat something. No, no, no. <laughs> I followed all of it. And when I go back and start answering it, just let me, let me know if I miss a piece. Yeah. Um, but yes, research shows that pain can be learned and stored into memory by neural pathways in the brain. So mm-hmm. neural pathways are essentially just passages in our brains and they help um, communicate messages to our bodies. And they're essentially how we learn and remember everything that we do. So simple example, if you think about a kid learning to ride a bike, at first it feels really complicated and difficult and it takes a lot of effort and focus, but you, you, you practice it, the brain develops neural pathways to help store each step of the process into memory. And then over time and with repetition, it just gets smoother and easier. And eventually you can hop on a bike and start riding and you're not even thinking about it. So your brain simply remembers what to do. That's a neural pathway. But just the same way that a brain can learn and remember the experience of riding a bike, the brain can learn and remember the experience of pain. So taking the example of an injury, when an injury occurs, your brain develops neural pathways to process that experience. So your brain learns, this is what pain feels like here. The same way that it learns all of our habits and behaviors. The problem is, the brain can also remember that pain quite well. So to your point about what happens when an injury heals, so you've had an injury and then it heals and is repaired and is no longer injured, your brain does not forget or erase those neural pathways. It's still in there the same way that you never forget how to ride a bike. It's been 10 years since I've ridden a bike, but I trust that if I hopped on, my brain would kick into gear and I would remember. Yeah. So That's um, the somewhat clear cut example, right? You have an injury, your brain processes the experience by creating neural pathways. And for some people, even after the injury has healed and your body is quote unquote cleared, the pain symptom continues. And now the pain is sort of living in your neural pathways. Right. That makes sense. When it comes to something like endometriosis, instead of the brain perpetuating or replaying neural pathways, from an injury that has healed, for example. What's Mm -hmm. happening, how I understand it, is that the brain is amplifying the volume on neural pathways that are tied to a current, quote unquote, injury or chronic condition. So the condition is still present, Mm -hmm. but the neural pathways, it's like the volume is being turned up by the brain. And the main contributing factor to the amplification of those neural pathways is fear. Because like we talked about, Pain is a danger signal. So the more a person is experiencing physical, psychological, or emotional threat, the louder a person's pain experience can become. So that's how I understand neural pathways working um, in some of these more complicated situations like a person with endometriosis or another chronic condition that is not healed or gone. The brain is still playing an important role, 
But instead of saying the brain is fully creating those symptoms, we can say something like the brain is amplifying them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, we we can see this like on on MRI scans, right? The way that it changes the structure of the brain and the way that the brain is responding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it changes our nervous systems as yes. well. I mean, it, it sensitizes them pretty significantly and in, in, in ways that generalize out. Yeah. So on in relation to that, um, am I correct in saying that um, the, the nervous system essentially becomes more sensitive. So those nerves that are sending signals, they have like a lower threshold. So they're sort of fire off messages to the nervous system, um, quicker with kind of less aggravation than they would normally. So you might begin to respond with pain to something that before didn't feel uncomfortable to you. Mm -hmm. That is a great way of putting it. Okay, and that would happen because you're kind of you're continuously exposed to pain. You then start to feel unsafe, and you start worrying about the pain. It just becomes a cycle, and then the nerves lower because your body is like, "I want you. I feel at threat, so I want you to be aware of what's happening around you. I'm going to make you more sensitive." Is that kind of the approach? A hundred percent. Yes, your brain's threshold changes, and you end up responding more severely than you might have previous to the pain or a few years ago. And again, what's so heartbreaking about this for someone who might uh, be on a long path to an accurate diagnosis is that all of that contributes to this idea that they're doing something wrong, right? Like, well, I have, I have other patients who they don't respond pain to pain this way, but you're just having an exaggerated response. There's nothing really wrong here. You're doing something wrong. It's just incredibly damaging and inaccurate. The, the brain has actually changed the threshold, like you're saying, and you put it so well, because it's, you're, it's, it doesn't want you to relax. It wants you very yeah. much to pay attention to the signals and get the treatment that you need. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, I, my understanding is it also does the same with our natural um, kind of pain relieving neurotransmitters and hormones. So like dopamine and, and serotonin and things it, it lowers those levels so that we're more kind of sensitive and we feel we, we kind of have natural we we um don't have a painkiller basically in our own mm-hmm. body mm-hmm. and when you say that i'm reminded as much as pain hurts and, and symptoms are so difficult to manage there's a there's a piece of all of this where you can hear how much the brain and the body are working together to get you help like a, 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 <laughs> doesn't feel good, right? It's ramping the pain up. It's lowering your threshold for pain. It's taking away the natural pain killing effect. But I just, I need to remind myself and I remind my patients all the time, like it's not in the purpose of torturing you. It, it's in the purpose of saying, hey, no, you're right. Your instinct is right. Something is going on here and we're not going to stop sending you these signals until you're getting the treatment and the help that you need. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. Yeah, I think that's really, really powerful. And I mean, is there a time when, uh, I don't know how to, you, you know, you've got the help, you've got the right support, but now it's a matter of like your pain, your your brain is just remembering this kind of pain and it's just, it's still feeling threatened because well, you've gone through a lot, right? A lot of a lot of clients that I speak to and a lot of people that I speak to say that they have like um, post-traumatic stress disorder around mm. what they've gone through. They don't like walking into hospitals. They they avoid calling the GP because it it, every, it just feels like such a stressor for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if we have got the right help, that I guess what I want to say is I don't want people to listen and think that, 
you know, some people come to me and they say, you know, I, I've had a really good operation. I'm, I'm doing everything right. I've done all of this stuff. I'm still in pain. And I guess I don't want people to get scared that there is still something, you know, mm. maybe the endo's blown up and they can't see it's got really bad, like the sister's back or, or something when actually it could, it could all be the same. Things could be under control physically but the brain, the pathways in the brain are just going on crazy because they have felt so unsafe for so long. Mm. Does that make sense? What an important point. Absolutely. Because I could imagine someone who may finally, after fighting their way through the medical system for many years, they finally do have a practitioner who knows what's going on. They finally do have someone who theoretically they should be able to trust and if their symptoms are still really severe, they might start questioning that, right? The patient might be, am I still not where I'm supposed to be? Mm -hmm. Am I, is, is there something more going on here? But to your point, I mean, the safety in a person's body and the safety and trust within the medical system can be all, all but destroyed, near, destroyed through yeah. the process of misinformation and negative narratives. And I think that's a big part of the work either with your um, physician or perhaps with the coach or a therapist, specifically working on regaining trust in someone, again, that theoretically should actually be able to help you and who knows what's going on. You got to develop trust in your body and with your treatment team because both have been affected over the years, over the years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually where, you know, we get, you know, we'll talk about curable in a minute, but where curable can really play a role. Um, mm -hmm. in calming you know calming down that down and helping you to build trust um okay so in relation to that what factors can influence pain for better or mm -hmm. for worse and um you know in the in the curable app you guys discuss like his, historical events and personality traits we kind of do this you do an assessment at the beginning you kind of click on the things that you've been through and like yeah i click like 95 percent of them um <laughs> and you know and those are those traits and those historical events are usually um common with chronic pain sufferers so i was wondering if you could walk us through some of these and yeah the factors that might worsen pain or or lower it sure so put simply and broadly anything that you do to create safety moves you in a helpful or a healing direction and anything that you do or that it has been done to you that creates fear will likely exacerbate or amplify the experience so mm. adverse childhood events uh just kind of a buzzword in psychology to mean anything that was traumatic to you can prime the brain early on for chronic pain later in life and the reason for that, again, comes back to fear. Any traumatic experience has likely impacted your relationship to fear and your ability to feel safe in your body. Mm. And it can be helpful to take stock of some of these. And yeah, the Curable app does a good job of prompting people to do so. Taking stock at the beginning of a person's chronic pain journey to see, can any insight be drawn about when and how safety became corrupted for me to start and is there anything going on with me presently, currently in my everyday life that's hitting, <laughs> hitting the same nerves, metaphorically speaking, like is the yeah. cord being struck again? And this might specifically be important for someone with endometriosis or again, for any chronic condition that is difficult to diagnose or pin down. If you've experienced in your past some kind of mistrust or lack of safety um, with a person or in your body, if that's then again being played out in the diagnosis process, I could absolutely imagine that that dual experience could have a big role on the amplification of the pain experience. It's a big topic, of course, the, this idea of trauma. And there's big T trauma, things that we would all objectively say, yeah, anyone going through that would be affected. And then there's what we call little T traumas, meaning truly anything that impacted your relationship with feeling safe matters. Mm -hmm. And I hear sometimes so, some of my clients almost talking to me like they don't, they don't, they feel like they don't deserve this diagnosis or um, this, uh, this, uh, they don't deserve the diagnosis of mind body syndrome. Like they don't deserve to say, I've been through enough for my brain to be amplifying the pain. 
Like right. they almost want their case study to look more severe so that, th- that it would make sense to them. And I just want to remind people, if, if, any, if the experience is impacted your ability to feel safe, then it matters. It's real and it could be having an impact on your day-to-day symptoms now. Yeah, I think that's really important as well because the kind of adverse childhood events, I mean, they've expanded on them now, but the, I think it's the initial 10 seem quite black and white but and you don't know if you fit into that but actually then they now have like a a broader um list of them um but you know I guess one of the question I had is I think one of them was um kind of having a parent with a mental health condition Mm -hmm. would that be you had to know that they were like diagnosed with depression or you just observed that they were behaving in a certain way like did you actually have to know that that person was unwell Hmm. I don't think you'd have to know it in a clinical sense or in a diagnostic sense for you to know that your experience was impacted by their well-being. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Um, and you, I mean, you mentioned some of them earlier um, when you were talking about your own story, but are there some kind of traits that you tend to see in chronic pain sufferers? Yeah. Yes. And I say all of these with love because I have all of them. (laughs) So um, I think the descriptions that we often see are chronic pain sufferers are goodists or perfectionists or type A. And it's not that I think that those are inaccurate, but I think a more relevant way of describing it would be um, personality traits that indicate you have a sensitive relationship to fear are important. Mm, Okay. Because they give us a clue into the way that that danger switch in the brain might be getting repeatedly activated by the way a patient or a person is interacting with themselves and the world. And the three um, traits or ways of behaving that I look for the most are pressure. So if you put a lot of pressure on yourself or you feel like a lot of pressure is put on you. Uh, Criticism. Again, if you often criticize yourself or were criticized growing up. And thirdly, worry. If you are prone to worry or ruminating and or if one of your caregivers or someone important in your life modeled this type of ongoing fear, I think those three ways of relating, pressure, criticism, and worry, are huge indicators that this person might be primed to experience pain. This is so interesting. Yeah, that's that's absolutely me, Titi. That's just my, my personality <laughs> I'm with you, I'm with in you. a nutshell. Yeah. <sighs> Um, okay. So, um, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I think that, you know, and I just want to give the listeners some context rather than ask you this specific question. But one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, well, is my bladder pain neuropathic because I am such an anxious, stressed person, or is it the fact that maybe I have biofilm in my bladder that hasn't yet been discovered and um you know i have SIBO and CIFO and you know maybe there's a chronic uti there so is there a way for someone who's like well how do i know is there a way to tell what's neuropathic versus tissue damage are there any patterns Mm -hmm. we can look out for yes so there are um, three categories of patterns that I would ask people to look out for. And maybe I should couch this in the more broader um, diagnosis process of we want to make sure we have a handle on anything that's physical or structural going on with you. We want to rule out where possible um, anything that's physically or structurally causing your pain. And then we want to rule in potentially a mind-body component. And these are the three categories Um, of mind-body symptoms or symptom patterns that I want people to look out for. Um, The first being functional, which means that the symptoms you're experiencing might not fit with or be explainable by any known structural conditions. So your symptoms persist way after an injury has healed, or your symptoms started in the right side of your body but kind of inexplicably shifted to your left. Um, or you have symptoms in all different types, all different areas of your body, either at once or every other day it's shifting. That's in the functional category, meaning it's not quite fitting or explained by a known structural condition. Right. Okay. The second category of symptoms would be inconsistent. 
So the symptoms are varying in ways that a structural condition or a pathological condition would not. Some of these are super obvious, like um, my symptoms hurt Monday through Friday, but on the weekends they're just gone and inexplicably only return when I get to the office again on Monday. Mm. Um, sometimes it could be like a time of day shift. I have patients who say, um, my, my stomach really hurts at 2 PM. Like, well, okay. That might be an indication that the brain has played some role of programming because a, a pathological or a structural condition doesn't necessarily know what 2 PM is. So looking for inconsistencies that don't really make sense um, in the way that a chronic injury or a structural condition would play out. And then the last category would be triggered. So symptoms that are brought on by a stimuli that would not actually cause the symptom physically, but might activate the brain to generate the symptom. So something like extremely light touch. So people with um, either who have symptoms that are quote unquote, purely caused by the brain, so there's nothing going on structurally, or people who have symptoms that are uh, remarkably exacerbated by the brain might experience severe reactions to very light touch, something that shouldn't actually be hurting them, but really feels intense. Same can be true for symptoms being triggered by smells or sounds um, or specific movements. So that category triggered means any, any stimuli that feels really intense for the person, but you can't actually find a structural reason to match that up with. So those are the three categories that have people look for, functional, inconsistent, and triggered. And that's um, a Howard Schubiner thing. He puts that out there a lot. He called it his fit um, yes. mnemonic. Yeah. And I mean, this is so interesting because is it possible to have both a degree of neuropathic pain and a physical root cause such as like inflammation or you know endo lesions i guess i guess yes because of what you're talking about with the um amplifying the pain but it it makes it difficult to assess because um so for example with my bladder pain when it first started um it was it was Monday to Friday. It was all the time, but I could feel it. I always had it, but I could feel it the worst Monday to Friday. And when I spoke to my nutritionist at the time, um, she was like, what, what are you eating differently? And I, so I'm really, really healthy. I eat a lot of vegetables. Um, and what we worked out is that my, in part, my blood my pain is related to histamine and i was mm. kind of eating a lot of vegetables um at during the week and i would just tend to because of the type of meals that i would have at the weekend have less like you know not an unhealthy amount but i eat like eight portions of veg a day and so <laughs> maybe i'd have like five like on a saturday and so i was having like less like oxalates and histamines that i was sensitive to but at the same time I was also starting my coaching business and had just qualified mm. and was, you know, really stressed out about it. So it was a very blurry line. And, you know, with the 2 p.m. pain example in the abdomen, to me, if someone said that to me, I'd think, oh, they have SIBO. Because SIBO, the, the abdominal pain from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth gets worse as the day goes on as people eat. So two hours after lunch, uh, two hours after lunch or an hour after lunch, my brain, I would think that's interesting. What did you eat for lunch? So mm. it's really, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. It can be difficult for this community. Um, but would you say it is possible to have both scenarios? Yes, 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 yes. So I'll touch on a couple of things. Firstly, just the simple answer of yes, this is definitely possible for there to be some degree of neural circuit pain or mind-body syndrome amplification while also having a physical root cause? Definitely. And, and endo is a great example of this. The pain is there and the symptoms are there and they're real. There's no doubt. But brain reprogramming can still be effective because our emotional experience and how safe we feel in our body and with our treatment team can either amplify or alleviate those symptoms to some degree. So I think first answer, yes. <laughs> to touch on your second point of, okay, but doesn't that make it incredibly confusing, especially when there's <laughs> potentially multiple conditions or conditions that there are not very many practitioners who specialize in diagnosing or treating those conditions. 
Yeah, it's a, it's, it feels like a mystery and there's so much evidence gathering that's needed. And again, that speaks to the importance of advocating for yourself and finding someone who truly specializes in what you believe that you have so that they can rule out some of that noise. Some of the symptoms, patterns that you're experiencing might be clearly indicative of the brain at worst, at, at work. And then if someone's really specialized in the condition, they might be able to catch like you just did. Well, hey, that 2 p.m. thing, I know this about SIBO and that could have something to do with lunch. If you're not with the right specialist, if you're not with the right treatment team, I think it's significantly harder to parse out what's a, an important signal of something going on with the body and what might just be brain noise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... um I mean, you just said that, it, you know, the work you do at Curable can still be effective whether or not you have both. So how do we begin to reprogram our brain to respond differently to these nerve signals? And um, can you tell us a little bit about the wonderful Curable app? Yes. So Curable's fantastic. It's, I'm happy and proud to be on their scientific advisory board. I think the founders of the app are fantastic. They're all chronic pain um, recovered chronic pain patients themselves. So they really get it. Um, for anyone who's not familiar, it's an app that guides users through an evidence-based pain psychology self-care program that includes uh, accurate pain science and then hundreds of exercises that are designed to help you break out of this pain-fear cycle. Mm. Um, and there are four main categories of work that's suggested in the app. There's pain education, accurate pain education, there's brain training, there's meditation, and there's expressive writing. And what I think is cool about the app is it can give you real-time and tailored recommendations for each user. So it can take your feedback on, did you really enjoy that meditation? Or was that one not really for you? Or did you really get into that expressive writing exercise? Or was it triggering for you? And then it will suggest more of what you like and what works for you. And then occasionally suggest an area of focus that you might not be as familiar with just to open that door for you to explore. So I think of it like um, an organized everything but the kitchen sink app where anything that you might want to know about chronic pain and mind-body syndrome and mind-body amplification is in there. And there's a real-time, uh, they call it a personalized smart coach that helps you navigate that sea of information because as you know, it can be somewhat overwhelming, even once you open this door into brain amplification, which feels like, oh, I'm getting closer to understanding how all of this works. It can then be somewhat overwhelming to try to integrate all that information and figure out what to do with it on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think Curable is great for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm in your, so you guys have, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's a 12-week group program as well mm -hmm. um so in that because i i wanted to join this um the one that just started um but i'm gonna maybe join in the in the fall um cool. and i attended like the talk and you had some really amazing stats about you know the the symptom reduction of people who went who go through curable or the 12-week program do you happen to remember any of those kind of stats or, or have any information on the effectiveness yeah so i know i don't know how this specifically relates to participation in the groups or the i think they, the, we call them boot camps here boot it. camps. yeah highly recommend patients who've gone through it absolutely love it but i do know in general that 69 percent of curable users report some level of pain relief in the first 30 days of use wow and right like if you think about it huge when you're in pain, I get it. You want to get better yesterday. So thinking about 30 days, or I usually recommend that people give it six to eight weeks. Okay. If you think about that, it might sound like, oh my God, but I'm in so much pain right now. I need relief at present. Completely understandable. But when you think about the task is literally changing the way that your brain is wired, it's pretty remarkable that 69% of users are, are finding relief within the first 30 days. Like that's, that's, powerful and it speaks to the neuroplasticity of our brains and how much accurate and targeted practice can really make a difference quite quickly yeah that's that's amazing and 
you recommend six to eight weeks. Is there an amount of time that you recommend per week um, that someone would do that for, do the curable uh, exercises for? That's a really good question. I, in general, I would suggest hopping on there every other day. Okay. Because I think that gives you a break and it also keeps it on your mind enough to make it a practice mm-hmm. where that might need some specific recommendations or tailoring per person is we're threading the needle between you want to stay engaged and you don't want to pressure yourself. So you want to learn and you want to immerse yourself in the new material, but not to the point where your recovery is starting to feel like a, a stressor or a, a pressure filled task. Mm. So I think every other, uh, every other day is helpful for at least in the beginning for getting the momentum going. But I always tell people, be easy with yourself, check in on how it's feeling to you to use it with frequency and give yourself a little grace to get used to exploring what for many people is just a completely new way of thinking about pain in their bodies. Okay. That's so helpful. That's really, really helpful. Thank you. Um, and you know, a, a challenge I personally face, and it's not so much, I might be getting my wires crossed, but from memory, it's not mm-hmm. so much, a, um, an, a thing that comes up in a curable app, but I listened to the Tell Me About Your Pain podcast, which is a podcast that's in partnership with Curable. Mm-hmm. And Alan Gordon, in that, he often talks to the listeners and says, you know, there is nothing wrong with your body, like you're safe. And a lot of his exercises are about feeling safe in your body. But if you know that there is an active condition like endometriosis, where unless someone opens you up, you can't guarantee that it's not mm-hmm. growing. How do you have some kind of advice for how we can feel safe in our bodies? Because so much of at least Alan Gordon's work is, you know, there isn't anything wrong in your body. You know, it's we're working on your mind. Your body is safe. It's a safe Mm -hmm. place to be where I'm like, I don't know if my bladder's safe. Like it might have blisters inside. Like and it also might have like a chronic UTI that's hidden in my bladder wall. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's quite hard to calm into his exercises at least because I don't know that my body is safe. Yes. Oh my gosh. And you're picking up on the nuance so well, in my opinion. So let me speak to some of that. Maybe I should have um, given this language earlier on in uh, the episode today, but we understand pain in three broad categories, mm-hmm. structural, blended and neural circuit pain structural meaning you straight up have something wrong with your body like you broke your leg it's a clean break you just broke your leg yesterday okay okay, you're gonna need to take a traditional path to healing there so we're not talking we haven't talked a ton about straight structural pain today and i don't talk about it with much of my patients it's traditional mainstream medicine pain management that's structural pain Mm -hmm. blended pain blended symptoms is what we've been returning to many times here today something like endometriosis or another chronic condition where there may be brain-based amplification but you cannot ignore or deny the fact that something is going on pathologically in the body that's blended and then straight neural circuit symptoms which is what you hear alan uh, referencing in the tell me about your pain podcast that's what i experience that's what i reference in the beginning of today's episode I did not have, I do not have any chronic conditions in my body that are um, tied to the symptoms that I was experiencing. My brain was responsible for causing. There was not, it wasn't an amplification thing, it was causal. So there's structural pain and symptoms, there's blended pain and symptoms, and then there is neural circuit, fully neural circuit based pain and symptoms. And you're picking up on this quite well. Curable really speaks to the blend because they want to be um, accessible to the to the majority of the population. Many people have a blended experience of their pain. And even someone fully with neural circuit pain can still learn from their approach, which is very, again, open, talking about the way that the brain and the body can work together. Whereas, um, like you mentioned, the Tell Me About Your Pain podcast is really tailored to people who have neural circuit pain and are able to have that blanket statement of, I am safe, there is nothing wrong with me. Okay. That makes sense. So I do. Okay, good, good. And I, you're, I, it's, I mean, I'm not surprised, obviously you're very um, deep into this work, but it's just interesting the way that you could catch the difference. And I do think that there is one. And what I would recommend to someone who does not feel good saying to themselves, 
there's nothing wrong with me because it doesn't feel accurate. And perhaps it even feels invalidating or a little bit triggering Mm -hmm. because it seems like a distant relative of that it's all in your head reasoning that you may have been confronted with during the diagnosis process. So if it doesn't feel good to say there's nothing wrong with my body, what can you say? What messages can you give yourself to affirm that you feel positive, feel something positive and calming about your body, but that's still true and accurate for you? So something like, my body is strong, or I deserve to feel safe in my body, or I have the power to impact my pain experience. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Or like my body is actively healing or yeah. yeah I okay. love that. I love that. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Um, and I, I know you have to run now. So um, final question. Um, yeah. Are there like one or two exercises that listeners could begin at home that, you know, you, you're able to point us in the direction of or share with us? Yeah. 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 Um, let me share one from curable and then I'll share one just from my own practice, something that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, one from curable is called a pep talk. And this is something that you could use time and time again, anytime your symptoms come on or anytime you're just feeling upset by your symptoms. So the idea is to change the response of your nervous system. When you're in pain, you want to change the narrative. So helping yourself hold on to some sort of calming or empowering narrative about the pain or your pain recovery. Like you were just saying, I am actively healing and I have some level of control over my experience. So the idea of a pep talk is writing down words that you want to remind yourself the next time you feel upset about your pain, some messages or affirmations that feel calming and empowering Because it can be easy enough to write that when you're in a good space, but it can be pretty hard to access that self-compassion or self-empowerment when you're really feeling activated about your symptoms. So write up your pep talk, keep it somewhere handy, write it in your phone or put a little post-it note in in the pocket of your pants, keep it with you so that you can use it with frequency. That's That's one of my favorite ones from Curable. Thank you. And then one of my favorite ones just from my own practice and what I do often is calming my body when my mind is racing. So if I'm experiencing some sort of rush of anxious thoughts, and I see this with a lot of my patients, if they're feeling really upset about their symptoms, we notice that the mind starts uh, catastrophizing the way that we're viewing ourselves in our recovery. So it'll sound something like, I'm never going to get better, or no one has ever felt this way before. And this makes sense because anxiety actually alters our ability to access the part of our brain that's responsible for logic and decision-making. So we're basically set up to feel failure and catastrophe. So instead of battling it out with your mind, like trying to use logic to calm yourself down, I'm not never going to get better. Logically responding to that might sound something like, no, well, my doctor told me within three to four months, I might be expected to have... It's, it's too much because you're in a swell of anxious, swirling thoughts. So what I suggest is that's a great moment to turn to your body. Do something like really simple box breathing, which is inhaling to the count of four, holding to the count of four, exhaling to the count of four, and holding to the count of four. Any breathing pattern or calming physical body regulation technique that you can use to get your mind out of that catastrophic thinking and into some simple body awareness. Do that for a few minutes until you're a bit more regulated and then you can resume engaging with your thoughts because by this time, your logical brain might be a little bit more uh, easily accessible. Okay, that's amazing. That's actually what I do and what I share with my clients to do as well. And I really love tapping for that because you're kind of touching your body in different places. So it can really, yeah, yeah, just kind of focuses yourself on your body. Um, so Christy, I'm going to let you go, but I am so, so, so thankful that you've been on the show. This has been my favorite podcast interview ever, honestly. So So fascinating. So So fascinating. Um, I really think this is going to be so helpful and eye opening for a lot of people. 
Um, so thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, for any members listening, Christy is going to come and do a live talk with us in a couple of months. So um, Christy will be back. And thank you so much for coming on. Um, oh it's been amazing. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was such a pleasure. And I'm excited to get to um, engage more with your community. Thank you. And thank you to the whole Curable team. Of course. And more soon. Take care. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. 